Alfal fantasizing about open option parking. This week, Edmonton took big leaps to being the first municipality in North America. Uh, nope. Canada? Nope. A leader in? We're following High River here. We're doing open option parking, okay? We're doing it in our own time, and it's fine. We'll have it faster than SmartFare. Probably. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 70. You nailed the title first time. I'm impressed. <laughs> That was a tongue twister. We were talking before the show of just how can I output alfalfantasizing? fantasizing? Oh, wow. Look at I that. did it again. <laughs> Is he a god? I don't know. But he did write the rapid fire, which we're going to jump right into. Cleaning clause represented the most frequent restaurant violation in 2018, totaling 17% of all violations. The other top violations included things like holding food at the wrong temperature, issues with thawing and broken equipment. However, we weren't really sure how to break down and make sense of this information, so we used Edmonton's most plentiful and well-reasoned demographic, drivers. Setting up in front of the Capilano Walmart, we learned that I told you so and scofflaw chefs, if they can't follow the rules, then we're done with their pet project restaurants and we'll stop giving them special treatment by allowing them their own building and just make the parking lot bigger instead. A local Edmonton man is prepped and ready for his time to shine. The resident, a noted Jeopardy fan, was prepping for the upcoming online test when he discovered he was quite weak on the Canadian Forces history category. Remembering that there were bronze engraved flashcards with former service members' names mounted on the benches in areas like Victoria Promenade and Grant Notley Park, he picked them up and began studying. By the time the news article came out saying that memorial plaques had been stolen, he was too far gone, and the only way to pay the restitution is to get a big game show win and donate the earnings. Uh, but then he discovered he was weak in a category called Previous Generation Edmontonians, and the cycle started all over again. In replacing Saskatoon's arena, city officials drew guidance from Edmonton's ice district. The new arena has yet to pick a formal location, but will likely be downtown in an attempt to emulate the success the area has seen in Edmonton. Of the key lessons learned when building an area, some of the top few that Saskatoon planners took away are, number one, ensure any LRT platforms built for the arena cannot service the arena. Number two, absolutely no definite articles in the area name. And number three, if you think you have enough parking, you're probably right, but if there's not at least double the peak hour requirement and it's not free, everyone will complain, so just throw a few more taxpayer-funded parkades down. And lastly, number four, there is no upper limit on the price of beer. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, and coming up soon is Skirts of Fire, Edmonton's only multidisciplinary arts festival featuring and elevating the work of women. This year's festival is bigger than ever before, with venues in Old Strathcona, downtown Edmonton, and Alberta Ave, and among some of the highlights are music, dance, drumming, and performance all along the Alberta Ave, and of course, much, much more. Uh, Skirts of Fire takes place from February 27th to March 8th. Festival passes are on sale now for just 38 bucks, and that'll get you into the Blue Hour, one evening performance at the Station on Jasper, and as many by donation events as you like. You can get your tickets today at skirtsafire.com. That's skirtsafire.com. So, it is episode 70. We are amid the week. We promised an entire episode about gondolas, and by golly, we're not going to deliver. Just like last week, we didn't deliver on up-to-date information about when parking minimums were coming back to city council. Yeah, we kind of said, what is this story about? Why are we talking about open option parking? They have to pass a bylaw still. Like, this is down the line. And that's, of course, because we remembered that in May, 
Urban Planning Committee unanimously said, yeah, we want to go ahead with changing the parking minimums and forgot that council likes to do things in baby steps and needed a report back to give them options on how to implement that. And so that's what happened this week. Committee got a report that said we could do it in one of three ways. The option that administration liked was just fully implement open option parking, which means we just get rid of any minimum requirements across the board. And that's what committee decided to endorse. It goes to show even the most infallible of municipal podcasters can still miss something in the mountain of bureaucratic nonsense that city council outputs each week. But it was a pretty big thing. It it wasn't nothing this week. This is a big deal. Yeah, we had talked about open option parking in the past. I think the debate at committee this week was more unanimous than it's previously been about these sorts of discussions. Yeah, I mean... I guess one of the things that's interesting to me is how long this has been going on for. And and that's something that we will, I think, touch on again later in the episode on other items. But council has been looking at this since at least 2014. Um, they had previously endorsed, you know, piloting this. And so we had parking rec- minimums removed in downtown and old Strathcona, 124th Street, at least for eating and drinking establishments um, is a bit of a test run. Let's see how that goes. They did all this research administration did. They brought these reports back and about how other cities across North America have, you know, implemented this, taken steps to do this. Um, this was back in uh, in May last year, of course. We know that more than 100 cities at that time already had some kind of open option parking. At least eight of them had it completely citywide. So, you know, Edmonton is taking a good step here, but it's also following a lot of other municipalities that have led the way. So I guess we should clarify open option parking in this case, and it's the choice council went through. Essentially, in our zoning bylaw right now, you have to have a minimum number of parking stalls for each establishment, and it's broken down by establishment. A big box store selling retail goods might have X number of parking stalls per square foot. Eating and drinking establishment may have a different number. And also residences, right? There's got to be a minimum number of spots there as well. These rules have been in place since the 70s, right? Yeah. This is a long time coming to change and update these bylaws. Of particular note, with residents, it needs to be off street parking stalls. You do not own the parking on the street in front of your house. And that was very frustrating to a lot of both residents and business owners, businesses that may be located downtown or on White Ave, where a lot of their clientele walks, buses or bikes, or residents who walk, bus and bike and are forced to pay for two parking stalls on their property when they don't plan to ever own a car. Right. So in many ways, it just was limiting the market artificially. It was What administration said it was leading to an overabundance of parking across the city where it wasn't necessary. And that's going to lead in an increase in cost and an increase in land use. And many of the uh, city planners argued that this is a large contributor to our urban sprawl and our less compact urban form because we are mandating, you know, space for car storage that goes unused most of the time. Yeah, the report was really clear on this. It said the current minimum parking requirements are ineffective at matching supply and demand and have resulted in an oversupply of on-site parking. And they called, in the report, administration called open option parking one of the most influential zoning bylaw amendments that can be made to ensure the urban form envisioned by the emerging city plan policy can actually be realized. So they see this as kind of a foundational thing to do if we're ever going to achieve what city plan hopes to achieve. We joked off the top about, you know, being a leader and many cities across North America have done this. We are, in my estimation and my brief research before the show, the first city in Alberta to do it. Because High River is a... High River is a town. There you go. Um, High River has implemented open option parking and they haven't declared bankruptcy yet. So... (laughs) 
maybe not a catastrophic ending, but is this a catastrophic success story? Catastrophic, probably the wrong adjective to use there. Yeah, I'm sorry, Ashley. I'm going to pick on you again a little bit like from last week. But so Ashley Salvador tweeted about this and she's done some really great work to um, rally people behind this and to make it known um, that this is a positive change. And I don't disagree, but she tweeted, this is history in the making. It's big. It's transformational. It's the kind of change that can shift the direction and culture of a city. And I read that and I just felt like that's a little bit of hyperbole for me. I mean, this is a positive thing. I think it's pretty clear that this is something that needs to happen if we're going to start to change the urban form. But everyone still owns a car. Everybody still drives in Edmonton. It's not like tomorrow we're going to see a bunch of condos that have no parking. Like this is going to take time for these types of changes to actually be realized or to have an impact. And I'm all for incremental change, but it just felt a little like, A, we haven't got to public hearing yet. Mm -hmm. I have no question. I have no doubt that it'll pass and everything like that. But, you know, A, we haven't got there yet. And B, it's like we need a lot of other things to happen for this bylaw change to actually make a difference in our city. And I think it's pretty salient to remember that in some ways, this bylaw has already been in effect. Like you said, you know, in the White Ave, Jasper Ave, 124th Street area, you could, for certain classes of businesses, yeah. not have parking. Um, and not a whole ton of businesses have taken the city up on that option because they like to have parking. Because and they know that everybody drives. I know I'm exaggerating here a little bit, but a lot of Edmontonians drive, right? Yeah. And that doesn't change just because we change a bylaw. And I think the more salient point, and an astute listener might be screaming and bashing their head into the wall <laughs> at the stupid speaking municipally host saying but the residences this allows more neighborhoods to be mixed use and to have less cars and to have a more dense urban farm yeah and to that i'd counter sure but we already have parking minimums and go to any public hearing for an infill development or a different zoning and 100% of the residents there will complain about traffic and parking. Yeah. And that's already with the parking minimums. Right. If a development tried to have no parking, imagine the furor and hell that would be raised. So I think this is a long shot from the transformational cultural change, but it does enable a cultural change to happen. So I we're not ragging on the open option parking, but I think it's going to be decades before we see this have a true transformational effect. So when this came up in May, one of the things I think we may have talked about on the show, I remember this, Lauren Gunter's column in the Edmonton Sun, he said, open option parking proves City Hall hates your car. I didn't hear much about that this time, but <laughs> did you hear anything this week? Is this a refrain that has come up as the end as the uh, the car lobby opposed to this? It seemed to go pretty smoothly. Going to be honest, I don't read a lot of Lauren Gunter, <laughs> but when you heard speakers at City Hall, even the development speakers, they were there and they were saying, look, we support this. Okay. I think a lot of education has happened from when this was first raised until now. And a lot of education has been raised on the idea that this is a market-based approach. This isn't about reducing parking. In fact, in some developments, it may cause an increase in parking. Right. And city council, Ben Henderson specifically, did broach the idea of, well, do we need parking maximums? Because just removing parking minimums doesn't seem as effective at reducing parking. And he seemed to have alluded to, I think, the brewery district as mm. an example of, well, this was in a BIA that didn't have parking minimums, and yet they installed way more parking than we wanted them to. Right. If this was a move by the Warren cars, it's just not a very effective one. It's like, we'll let them go get their bylaw change because it's not going to influence anything anyway, at least not for a while. But 
that's basically all. Like you said, this still has to go to public hearing and have a bylaw approved, but it's going to it's going to pass. Yeah. Uh, but something that won't come to pass is the implementation of SmartFare, which is delayed until 2021 asterisk. Troy's adding this asterisk for at least. Yes, uh, we both tweeted about this. I think as soon as the CBC <laughs> article came out, the spokesperson from the city said the end goal is to have everybody in by the end of 2021. And then she spends the rest of her time in the article walking that back uh, to say that it depends on how it rolls out and they're not really sure which groups they're going to test it out with, if it's going to be students or whatever. And they want to be sure that, you know, those groups receive it positively. And basically, we seem no closer to getting SmartFare today than we were well over a decade ago. Yeah, well over a decade. In prepping for this show, I had mentioned, yeah, I've heard Don Ives in campaign on this in more than one election. And you're like, really? So we went looking. And in fact, yes. Yeah. So in the articles you'll read on the on this news this week, you'll hear that Mayor Don Iveson said in 2014 that he wanted to get this up and running by 2016. But if you look at his blog post from 2012, <laughs> you find this gem of a quote. I have been advocating for SmartFare since before I joined city council, as far back as 2006 when I was doing government relations for the undergraduates at the U of A and we were negotiating the initial UPASS deal. So this was in 2012 that um, council first unanimously approved the idea of SmartFare. They allocated $7 million to go and do it. They directed the mayor to go and talk to the regional partners, the other municipalities, to see if we could do something together. And it seemed like things were going to be moving. A short six years after Don first started talking about this, council was going to move ahead. And here we are, 10 years later, <laughs> nine years later, whatever it is, and uh, we still have no smart bear. I'll say as an aside, many councillors between the terms delete their website and their blogs and all those old posts are lost into ether. Don Iveson didn't do that. And perhaps it was not such a smart idea because we cannot do this historical digging on the other counselors Let as much. Let me just submit these few websites to the Internet Archive. Okay, there we go. <laughs> um, but this is a really hard problem that Edmonton's being a pioneer in solving, right? Like, Oh, absolutely. No other city has had a system like this since 1996. <laughs> so I was looking at this. Everyone talks about the Octopus Card in Hong Kong as, you know, kind of the most well-known of these uh, smart fare um, options. Um, but it actually says on the Wikipedia page, so if it's wrong, blame Wikipedia, that uh, the U-Pass, very confusingly named U-Pass, launched in South Korea the year prior in 1996. So anyway, late 90s, um, we had them over, over in Asia. In 2003, they launched the Oyster Card in London. Here in Canada, a little bit closer to home, they launched the Presto Card back in 2009. Like, we are far from leaders in this. We are, you know, that whole, like, early adopters, insane fringe, late laggards. Like, we're definitely, definitely laggards. And to add salt to the wound and all of this, like, you can't even buy tickets from a fair vending machine with a credit card or a bank card. Like, you have to go and pay with cash. And they've been delaying the implementation of, you know, having, they call them fair vending machines in transit stations. Right. Because smart fare is coming. Right. Everything gets delayed because in theory. Just add a credit card reader to yeah. some stations. Just do it. Like get the security people that you hired to stand around to all put square on their phone and sell them a ticket. Like. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
This is a long-standing issue, and it's one of the frequent issues we see in the city where we have a very strong not-invented-here syndrome. This is not a problem that we need to solve. And now, like, we could say just go to Toronto, grab the Presto system. I know many listeners might be saying the Presto system has some problems, there's some lag, and you can, like, go into arrears if the bus hasn't synced with the network, blah, 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 blah. It works, I mean, that's interesting. You were telling me this before the show, and I didn't know that was a case. And I'm sure if you used it every day, you'd figure that out. But, you know, I used it, you know, Ottawa and Toronto when I was there in the summer, and it worked awesome. Like, it was great. I mean, my only experience with the Presto card is going in downtown Toronto, getting on the Union Pearson Express, tapping my Presto card, and bing, bang, boom, it works. Uh, Jumping on the commuter train all over the region, Presto card on and off, and it just charges me whatever the fare was. So, yeah, my experience with it, is only positive. I've heard a lot of feedback, but I guess, you know, you live in any city. You're going to have problems with any system. Sure. But the thing is, that system is done. We could install it tomorrow. Why is it taking so long? Well, and I tweeted you about this. We've done this before. When we got rid of our parking meters, coin-operated parking meters, and installed ePark, we bought the system from Calgary. And it was done in a summer. Why can't we adopt a system for this? What, like, Is it just because it's not for cars? And my big question also is, what is actually the delay here? Is this an implementation or is this a bureaucratic? Because SmartFare isn't being implemented for Edmonton. SmartFare is being implemented for the region. Right. And it's being tested on St. Albert and Sherwood Park buses. Is it a regional discussion around fare sharing and transfers? And maybe they want to do the bus network redesign and do a regional redesign. Why are we waiting for that? Just install them on Edmonton buses and other people can catch up when they do. If we have a Presto-esque system, we have a tap-on, tap-off system, and just occasionally you have to put in, you know, three bucks to go to a transit to another city, fine. That is still better than what we have now. Well, and I'm not exactly sure what they think is going to happen. Like, if we installed the system in Edmonton... And then this, you know, regional transit commission, the report came out last week, kind of talking about how this is, makes good business sense. If we decide to move ahead with that, it's not like we're going to implement a different system. Like the number of buses that Edmonton Transit maintains versus the rest of the region is just not even a fair comparison. If we implement the system in Edmonton, that will be the system that will roll out to the rest of the region. There's no reason to wait for that official document to be signed or that commission to be struck. Like the tech isn't going to change. Even further, we're doing a massive bus network redesign and we're going to have to evaluate the efficacy of the bus network redesign. Would we rather do that with manual clicking counters on each bus driver or just tap on tap off so everyone knows? This is a no brainer for making our bus network redesign go faster. So why would we delay this to past the end? And we've seen the buses. These are physically on a lot of our buses already. It is completely baffling to me why it isn't rolled out yet. And that leads me to a bit of cynicism about this because this wasn't released as a press release. The city didn't come back to council and say, hey, we're going to be delayed. CBC asked questions about it. The city got caught with their pants down and they said, oh, actually 2021 or maybe later. Why wasn't council given an update about this? And then Why they wasn't said, ETSAB given an update about this? You're right. And then they said they're going to give out more information in the next couple of months. Like you said, caught with their pants down. Yeah. Got to go figure it out now. Uh, I, I draw a lot of skepticism with us getting the full story here. I suspect what the city gave to CBC News 
was their version of damage control. <laughs> and if delaying the, what is this, 18-year delayed system is damage control, is this a Metro line bad implementation? That's my biggest fear right here. I suspect whatever the city is doing to implement this on their own isn't working, and we may have to rip it all out and get presto or something. Which we should have done in the first place. Which we should have done in the first place. So what's your prediction about when we'll actually see SmartFair? I don't think we will. It's maybe four or five years out. I do not think SmartFair, as the city is currently implementing it, with the tap on, tap off, they have installed on buses, will be the smart fair that gets deployed. Maybe this is me being overly pessimistic, but after 18 years, <laughs> literally most of my living life, I just don't have any faith on the implementation of this system. Um, so on that happy note... <laughs> yeah, I think we've talked about smart fair to death. If only we could kill it and then get a different system. Let's talk about property taxes briefly, um, because property taxes came up this week as the city was searching for alternative revenue options for reduced property tax tolerances. Yeah, it was kind of property tax week at executive committee. They had four reports all related to taxes. They have a new property tax policy discussion paper um, that you can read about, and it has all kinds of uh, considerations for what might happen in the future. Um, there was a couple of things that caught my eye in the reports. So the first was that in 2018, Property taxes accounted for 56.6% of operating revenues, followed by user fees, regulatory fees, and fines at 14.6. So over half of our operating budget comes from uh, property taxes. And then in a separate report, it said over the past 10 years, the tax burden has shifted toward residential property owners to from 49% to slightly more than 52%. And this is, the city says, due to proportionately higher residential growth but also some direction from council to increase the residential levy a little bit more than the non-residential. So when we you know, go decide what the tax rates are going to be, council has said, let's get a little bit more from residences rather than businesses. Well, and really, I think the discussion is more, let's get a little bit less from businesses. It was phrased sure. as a break for businesses, not let's raise taxes on houses. That's a fair point. point. And then, you know, compared to other municipalities in the region, 52%, 49%, what's the difference? It's pretty much 50-50, right? It's a split between the residential and the non-residential tax base versus, you know, Strathcona County, where the tax base is a way heavier slant toward non-residential and St. Albert, where it's a split toward residential. Um, the other thing in the report that I thought was interesting was administration very clearly said there's a relationship between our urban form and our long-term financial viability. And so when we build low-density development, it actually results in lower tax revenues and higher costs to support them. And so they talked about needing to make some changes here. And that's what these reports are all about. This is all about understanding where we're at with property taxes today and starting to think a bit more seriously, I guess, about what kinds of changes we would make going forward to try to change our reliance on property taxes. And really, we are not much able to rely on anything else because as a municipality, that's all we have for our taxation tools. And in fact, some taxation tools were taken out of our toolbox just recently when the UCP repealed city charters part two. Right. And I went to a news release or a news conference the other day at the AUMA president's summit. Minister Casey Madu was there. He was talking about this. You know, it's pretty clear that he was suggesting at thought that municipalities would benefit from a rebound in the economy. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, how do you see that happening? Would you create new ways for 
the cities to create revenue or would you uh, allot more money to them? And he just meant, no, like the development that will come, the investment that will come will happen in cities primarily. And so cities will benefit that way. So they seem pretty set on ensuring that property taxes remain our only tool uh, for for dealing with this. Yeah. And there's lots to be said about uh, the UCP's 2021 municipalities, the Local Authorities Election Act. We'll all cover that in a future episode. It's not the time for that. So you, you can wait, dear listener. Um, the final issue on the property tax, though, had a lot to do with, I laughed at this a lot, quote, rural Edmonton. Mm, yeah, the mayor had a pretty interesting quote about this. He said, right now, the way property taxes are assessed is essentially we look at only how much your property is worth, whether it's a condo, a ranch, or a duplex. And then he said, quote, the deeper issue here is that it's really unfair to charge a city rate for a rural standard inside the city of Edmonton. Why is Edmonton so large that we have rural areas <laughs> in the city of Edmonton? Asking the real questions, Troy. Asking the real questions. The example was a business owner in the Far East. Basically, he was paying four times as much in Edmonton versus his development just across the street in Parkland County. And they receive, you know, the same level of service, which is low. And all of that's really a fair point. But, and a heavy but on this, if we're talking about vastly reducing the property taxes of, quote, rural Edmonton areas because mm -hmm. they don't receive the same level of service, meanwhile, we're on the same day getting a report saying suburban sprawl is costing us way more than it's returning in tax revenue. Right. Why aren't we talking about increasing taxes on the suburbs? That is the question that's gone unanswered. Since Michael Oshry in his lame duck session back in 2016 made the motion to raise taxes on the suburb that got killed in committee. And indeed, committee this time actually talked about providing tax breaks for landowners in newly annexed areas. The opposite. Cool. Yeah. I cool. mean, they did talk about maybe we could do some incentives for, you know, redevelopments that don't require additional infrastructure because they'll be cheaper and increase our. But really, they talked about, well, these landowners in newly annexed areas, maybe we should give them a tax break. Yeah, um, I'm not certain that is precisely the change that administration was talking about us needing to get to our financial goals. Um, we don't often do a lot of media coverage on this podcast. Uh, most media interested listeners just can subscribe to the media roundup from Taproot Edmonton. So, you know, I got that plug right in there. I love it. Um, but I thought it was very interesting because one of my listen to every week was the press gallery podcast from the Edmonton Journal. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when we started speaking municipally at the coffee meeting, we said like, what does success look like for yeah. speaking municipally? And we said, well, about as many listens as the press gallery. That was the benchmark we set. And this week, the press gallery died. And simultaneously happy because it means we won, right? It is. <laughs> I didn't want to make the joke, but I'll yeah, we're definitely there. getting more listens than the press gallery now. Yeah. I mean, I was not a regular listener like you were. Whenever I did listen, I thought it was interesting and I enjoyed the conversation that they have. I also liked that they had the sort of rotating cast of characters with a few of the, the primary folks there. Um, the press gallery podcast ran for nearly six years and we found out about it from Emma Graney, who's no longer at Post Media. Yeah. It was a really baffling announcement because... The press gallery, it hasn't been on for the couple weeks after Christmas break, but normally they take a Christmas break. And ever since Emma Graney had left the journal, you know, it was a little bit patchy on releases. So I'm like, okay, they're working on hosting. It's fine. Yeah. I'll get a new podcast when I get it. And I see Emma Graney's tweet, who again, she doesn't work at the journal anymore. And she was the first one to mention anything about the press gallery and said, it's canceled. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Do you have information that I don't? And clearly she did. 
because after tons of retweet and outpouring of support, the Edmonton Journal gave a pseudo confirmation saying, we're going in a lot of new directions and press gallery listeners can tune in soon for something they'll like even more, um, which is sort of like a tacit implicit confirmation of cancellation without actually addressing, hey, we did this thing. We did this thing the week after we moved our provincial affairs columnist off that beat. What do you make of that? Because there's many things you can make of this situation. Yeah, I mean, obviously the conspiracy theorists are uh, and the Twitterati are, are talking about this is a conservative-led uh, push to get the journal, to get Post Media to be nicer to the conservative government, to be nicer to the UCP. I don't know that it's quite that malicious. It could just be a lot more simple. They don't have the revenue that they used to have. They're still struggling with debt and uh, servicing that debt. And they're continuing to make cuts where they can. And when people like Emma Graney leave, there's not people there ready to take on these projects. When we set our benchmark for, you know, achieving press gallery levels of success, and we're not far off from that, honestly, right now, we cannot sustain hundreds of millions of dollars of debt with speaking municipally no um so i can't imagine to get like four full-time journalists sitting in a room doing this editors and producers i can't imagine it was profitable it seems like it was a labor of love first from sarah o'donnell and then Miriam abraham and then emma graney afterward yeah but when emma left it was pretty clear that no one really loved that thing anymore But that wasn't the only big change at the journal. And that is why it was interesting, because Mark Ipe, the editor-in-chief of the journal, left. Yeah, I mean, he tweeted that he's no longer with the Edmonton Journal um, after six years. He said Wednesday is his last day with Post Media. He ended his tweet with, no idea what's next, so onward, period. That does not sound like someone who is moving on for new things or has another gig lined up or is trying new and interesting things. That sounds like someone who was pushed out and isn't doing sour grapes in public. Yeah, not yet. Anyway, yeah, it's disappointing. Um, I'm not really sure what this means for the Edmonton Journal currently. Probably this could be seen as a, a step toward less local editorial control but that remains to be seen maybe they'll find a replacement well and quite recently a new assistant editor just moved into the journal which was an import from toronto so again this is the lack of locality at the edmonton journal this is pretty quickly becoming a national post media paper and i don't know that that's great uh strictly speaking as someone interested in municipal politics Keith Gerine on the municipal beat. I don't mind. I'm glad that we have a city columnist again doing some work that Elise did before and then Paula did before. But there's a pretty big gaping hole on the provincial beat right now when I think that is the more dangerous territory. Um, So that's something to keep an eye on. If you want to keep an eye on these sorts of things, Media Roundup from Taproot Edmonton will keep you appraised of all of these every week. And that's all we have time to appraise you of municipal politics this week. Of course, just like this is the cost center that's raking in all the dough to finance our several hundred million dollars of debt that Taproot Edmonton (laughs) has, um, we need to read an ad. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by the Edmonton Community Foundation. 
It is hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink, produced by Lisa Pruden. The podcast explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Community Foundation, of course, helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. Episode 63 is the latest one. It talks about uh, iHuman Youth Society. They do a tour, and we learn all about the amazing ways they offer support to vulnerable youth. You can subscribe and listen to the podcast at thewellendowedpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So now that post-media is out of the game, if you want to, say, federal conservatives run a front-page podcast ad uh, endorsing you for the next election, we'll do it. On Speaking Municipally, <laughs> we will sell right out. Uh, granted, we do have a relationship with our advertisers where we get to be creative with the ad copy. So if we accidentally read it sarcastically, uh, well, we'll we might give you 10% off your fee. <laughs> I am not business daddy at Taproot Edmonton. Uh, this is why he leaves these things to me. Yeah. That's all we have time for this week. Uh, we will be back next week. And you'll notice specifically absent in this episode was talk about the gondola. Oh, we'll talk about that. It's coming. Up. We've extended an invite to a very important gondolish individual. And we'll be talking to him pretty soon. Monorail. So, <laughs> oh, boy. We are going to attack our guests. That's all for this week. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.